I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, we're this morning going to be looking at verses 28 to 34. So Mark chapter 12, let me begin reading for us in verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he, that is Jesus, answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and that there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices." And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to them, him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray, Lord, that as we look at this passage now, that you would, by your spirit, enlighten our minds to understand your word and that you would, by your Spirit, take these truths and seal them upon our hearts, that we, as your children, might live according to them by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we pray, Lord, for anyone here this morning who does not know Christ, that they, through your word this morning, would discover their need for a Savior and realize that Jesus alone is the one who can save them from their sins. Please do this for the glory of your name. We pray this in the precious name of your Son. Amen. Well, as I was uh, studying this passage this week, this thought came to my mind as I was reflecting on these words from Jesus. And the thought was this, that you could really summarize Christianity as love from God, love for God, and love for others. Love from God, love for God, and love for others. It's not complete. It doesn't encapsulate everything about Christianity, but it does in some ways capture what Christianity is about. It's about God's love for us. And he revealed that love for us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, died for our sins in our place. So it's about God's love for us, but it's also about our love in return to Him for loving us first. And then it's also our love for others as we reflect the love of God to the world. But if you're like me, the word that came to my mind as I thought about that was superficial. When I thought about a summary of Christianity, love from God, love for God, and love for others... The first word that came to my mind 
was superficial. For some reason, when I hear Christianity being defined by love, I find it superficial and empty, almost meaningless. And I had to think, why? And the only answer I came up with was this. The word love in our society has become the most superficial, empty, meaningless word to be used in the English language. The word has been hijacked to mean a bunch of things that God never intended for it to mean. But the fact is, there's nothing superficial or empty about love, according to the Bible's understanding of love. Love in the scripture is weighty. Love in the scripture is hard, it's meaningful, it's powerful, it's sacrificial. Love in the scripture makes demands. And that's what I think we see here in this passage with Jesus' encounter with this individual scribe. Jesus has just finished his discussion with the Sadducees over the issue regarding the resurrection. And we're told that a, a scribe, we don't know who he was, we don't know his name, but he, he came up and heard them disputing with one another, most likely the Sadducees, disputing in light of what Jesus had said. Now, whether this scribe was a, a Pharisee or a Sadducee, we're not told, but he was there in the midst of them, and he was impressed with Jesus' response to the Sadducees in regards to the resurrection. He saw that Jesus answered them well. Because, and because of the wisdom and insight he observed from Jesus' answer, it led him to ask his own question to Jesus. And his question was, which commandment is the most important of all? Which commandment is first, the most important command given from God? Now this isn't a random question whatsoever. There was much debate amongst the Jews on which commands were the most important. They wrestled through the hierarchy and the order of the commands. And one of the things they tried to do was to, was to be able to summarize the meaning of the Torah in a sentence or so. And so this scribe wants to know how Jesus might do this. And so how does Jesus answer him? Well, he answers him by telling him the most important command and the second most important command. And he does this by quoting to him two different passages in the Old Testament. The most important command comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6-4, and the second most important command comes from Leviticus 19-18. And so here Jesus responds in verses 29-31 to 31 with these words. The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So Jesus answers his question by stating that the most important command in all the scriptures, which is out of Deuteronomy 6.4, is to love God with all of who we are. That's what he means when he says, all your heart, all your mind, all your soul. It's the, the whole person. And the second is to love our neighbors 
as ourselves. Now, there's two questions we need to ask in light of this. First, what is Jesus doing by tying these two commands together? Because one is in Deuteronomy 6.4 and the other is in Leviticus 19.18. But here, Jesus ties them together. Why is he doing that? What's he doing? Well, he's demonstrating that love for God and love for neighbor are inseparable. You cannot love God if you don't love your neighbor. And you cannot love your neighbor if you don't love God. The Apostle John alluded to this in 1 John 4, 20-21, where he says, If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So that's what Jesus is doing when he, he ties these two commands together. He's showing that love for God and love for neighbor are inseparable. Secondly, we need to ask, why are these two commands the most important? Why, out of all the commands in the scriptures, does Jesus declare that the two most important commands are love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself? Why not thou shall not murder? Why not thou shall not commit adultery? Why not any of those commands? Why these two commands? Why are these the two most important? Because the reality is this. Every other command in the scriptures finds its meaning in these two commands. Jesus is summarizing the entire law with these two commands. In Matthew's account, Jesus says this in Matthew twenty-two forty: On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The whole Old Testament depends... On these two commands. You see, in fact, these two commands summarize the Ten Commandments for uh, which Bev read for us, right? The first four commandments in the Ten Commandments are in relation to God. The latter six are in relation to our fellow neighbor. Why should you have no other gods before the one true God? Because you're called to love God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Why should you not make an idol and bow down to it? Because you're called to love God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Why should you not take God's holy name in vain? Because you're called to love God with all of who you are. Why are you to honor your father and mother? Because you're called to love your neighbor as yourself. Why are you to not murder? Because you're called to love your neighbor as yourself. Why are you called to not commit adultery? Because you're called to love your neighbor as yourself. And the same goes with stealing, bearing false witness, and coveting your neighbor's belongings. All of God's moral law can be summed up in these two commands. That's precisely how the New Testament writers understand it. In Romans chapter 13, after Paul has just given instruction about submitting to government authorities, he then goes on to say this in verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment, 
are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. You see, this is why Jesus says there is no commandment greater than these, because all the other commandments find their meaning, they find their fulfillment in these two commands. Now, we need to ask, what do these commands actually mean? What does it mean to love God in this way? What does it mean to love our neighbors as ourselves? I'm getting attacked by a wasp right now. First, what does it mean to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength? Because God is the one true God, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. Because God is the one true God, He is the only God, that means He alone is worthy of a love that demands our whole being. There is no other reality, no other person that has the demand or that can demand from you love with your whole entire being. Only God can make such a demand because he alone is worthy of such love. That's what Jesus means when he says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all your mind and all your strength. Did you notice the repetition of the all? You see, what Jesus is arguing is that above all other commands, the most important command is that we love God with all of who we are, our intellect, our affections, our will, all of who we are, undivided devotion to God. Now, what does he mean by love, though? Well, let me use some synonyms that will help us understand what Jesus means by love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Delight in the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Cherish the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Worship the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Adore the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Treasure the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. I think you get the point. Love is a treasuring, it's a, it's a delighting, it's an adoring of God. That's what Jesus means. And this is the most important command given to humanity from God. Secondly, what does he mean by loving our neighbors as ourselves? Well, there's an assumption here that Jesus makes about all of us, all of humanity. That assumption, which is a true assumption is that we all love ourselves more than others. Right? Love your neighbor as yourself. Which means, if we all just loved others in the same way we love ourselves, this world would be a better place. But the problem is, we don't love others as much as we love ourselves. Now this is radically this is a radically different message than the one our secular society promotes. The popular narrative today is that our problem is not that we love ourselves too much but that we don't love ourselves enough. What you and I need is greater self-love and greater self-affirmation. Now, I could be wrong about this and I could be exaggerating, but I don't know if there's ever been another time in history where narcissism has been promoted so widely as a virtue. 
Do you know the amount of books that are written about self-love? Or the amount of blogs that have titles like 10 Ways to Love Yourself Better Today? In other words, the assumption of our secular culture is most of us don't love ourselves enough, whereas the assumption of the scriptures is we all love ourselves way too much. Now let me prove to you that you love yourself more than others. You're in a group photo, and it's posted onto social media. Who's the first person you look at in the photo? Maybe I'm exposing myself, but, right? You want to know if you look good. Now, if you're a single person, there might be someone in the photo you like, and you might glance quickly over at them, but you still want to look at yourself to see that you look decent in that photo. Catastrophes often reveal most clearly just how selfish we are in nature, how much we love ourselves more than others. I remember back in March 2020 when the first uh, lockdown happened, there was so much news coverage about fights breaking out at grocery stores over toilet paper. You know what that man's problem was, that one man or the many who, who were taking toilet paper, that man who for some reason decided he needed to take all the toilet paper from Walmart and not give it to anyone else, you know what his problem was? He didn't love himself enough. If he had just spent a little more time in the morning looking in the mirror and affirming himself, he wouldn't have taken all that toilet paper. Now I realize I'm being a little facetious. But the fact of the matter is, the problem we face in friendships, in our marriages, in all of our relationships, isn't from a lack of self-love, but precisely the opposite. We love ourselves more than we love others. That's the problem. And so when Jesus says the second greatest command is to love our neighbors as ourselves, what he's saying is, in the same way that you care for yourself and seek your own well-being... Do to others. You clothe yourself. You feed yourself. You invest money in yourself. You woke up this morning showering and sought to look good. You do all these things to care for self precisely because you love yourself. Therefore, go and do likewise toward others. That's the point that Jesus is making. Seek the well-being of others. Care for others. Seek their good in the same way you seek your own good. That's what Jesus means when he says, love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus gives his answer to the scribe about what is the most important command. He tells him the most important command and the second most important. But how does the scribe respond? Well, surprisingly, he responds in a spirit of agreement. Look at verse 32. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. You see, this scribe agrees and affirms Jesus' interpretation of the Old Testament. In other words, through his own study of the scriptures, he too has come to such a conclusion. Now notice, he states that these two commands 
are much more. That is far more important than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. He understands that love for God and love for neighbor is far more important than the entire ceremonial system given in the law. Now, he's not saying the ceremonial system isn't important, but that it's not as important. You see, the problem with many of the religious leaders in Jesus' day was that they were devoted to keeping the commands for the sake of the commands, not understanding that the commands from God were always meant to be a means by which to love God and love one's neighbor. In other words, they were committed to the external act regardless of the state of their internal soul towards God and neighbor. You're commanded to offer a sacrifice. But are you offering that sacrifice because you truly love God or because simply it's your religious duty? See, this scribe understood that God was more concerned about the state of one's heart than whether or not one was committed to certain rituals and practices. The Old Testament testifies to this everywhere. Probably the most obvious is Psalm 51. David's confession is is Psalm 51, where he confesses his sin in regards to adultery and murder. And he says this, O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. God's concerned about the the state of the heart. Is your heart broken and contrite before him? Hosea 6.6 For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. God is far more concerned that you have steadfast love towards him and others and that you have a a deep knowledge and understanding of him than than whole burnt offerings. Amos 5, 21 to 24, I hate, this is God speaking, I hate and despise your feasts and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. What's God saying there? I'm more concerned about you loving your neighbor, upholding justice and righteousness than all your assemblies and all your religious practices when you do not care for your neighbor. Or Micah 6, 6 6-8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall, Shall I come before Him with a burnt offerings with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. God is concerned about the state of your heart before him far more than he's concerned about rituals and practices. You see, this scribe probably knew these passages very well. 
He was a good student of the scriptures. And he knew, unlike many of the religious leaders, that God was primarily concerned about one's love for God and for neighbor, not mere observance to rituals and commands. And so when Jesus saw the wisdom of this man's answer, Jesus responds to him in verse 34. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This statement that Jesus makes, you are not far from the kingdom of God, I think serves both as an encouragement and a warning. It's an encouragement because this man, this scribe, was genuinely seeking God and drawing near to the kingdom of God. And the scripture said that if we seek God with all our hearts, he will be found. There are many who are like this scribe. They're not in the kingdom of God, but they're drawing nearer. They're getting a little closer. Maybe we have some friends or family members or co-workers who are far closer to the kingdom now than they were 10 years ago. And that's something to be deeply encouraged about. Because there are also many who are far from the kingdom of God. Many of the religious leaders were far from the kingdom of God at Jesus' day. But there are those who are near. And that should be an encouragement. And maybe you're here this morning and you're nearer to entering the kingdom of God than you were a year ago. Praise the Lord. But hear me on this. This is also a warning. It's also a warning. How so? Because being near the kingdom of God is not the same as being in the kingdom of God. I wonder how many have drawn near to the kingdom of God, yet in the end chose to never enter into the kingdom of God. Don't let that be your predicament. You might ask, well, how does one go from being near the kingdom and, and entering into the kingdom? Well, the answer is actually quite simple. You must embrace the king of the kingdom. Embrace his good lordship over your life. You must believe upon the king and trust in the king, declaring him lord over your life. That's how you gain entrance into his kingdom. And from that day forward, you live your life for the king. And that king is none other than Jesus himself. Don't just draw near, friend, but enter into the kingdom by Enter into the kingdom of Jesus by coming to Jesus. Now, there are some very important truths that come out of this passage. I came up with about eight, but I'm only going to look at three this morning. These are important truths that I want us to see that Jesus alludes to or implies based upon what he says. The first is this. There is, in fact a hierarchy when it comes to God's commands. There is, in fact, a hierarchy when it comes to God's commands. There are more important commands than other commands. Now, that doesn't mean that you can disregard or be indifferent to lesser commands, but it does mean there is an order to God's commands. Jesus himself says it. This is the most important command. And the second is... 
Do you remember Jesus' words in, in Matthew 23 where he gives his woes to the scribes and Pharisees? In Matthew 23, verse 23, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin. But then he says this, And have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You ought to be concerned about the weightier matters of God's law while not neglecting those that are not as weighty. Now why is this important to understand? Because if all you're concerned about is obeying God's commands as a new covenant believer, regardless of how the commands relate to one another, you will actually end up breaking God's commands. Let me give you an extreme example, but I, but I think it makes clear what I'm trying to convey. You're living in Nazi Germany. The government has put into law that as a citizen, you must not have any Jews into your home, nor hide any Jews in your home. What do you do as a Christian? You see, if you simply respond by, well, God has commanded Christians to submit to governing authorities, therefore I will not have any Jews in my home because I'm called to submit to the government, you will actually end up breaking God's law. Because by submitting to the government in that scenario, you will break the second most important command that Jesus gave us. Love your neighbor as yourself. So as a Christian, you have a moral duty to care for the Jews and hide the Jews from a government that's trying to kill them. And that moral duty is love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, loving your neighbor as yourself is more important than obeying the government in certain circumstances. And that might create, of course, a lot more questions for us this morning, and that's fine. But all I want to show is that Jesus here is clearly teaching that there are greater and lesser commands in the Scriptures. And this is why, as a Christian, it is important you know God's Word. Secondly, the greatest evil... The greatest wickedness that a human being can commit is not murder, though that is evil. It's not rape, though that is evil. It's not adultery, though that is evil. The greatest evil, the greatest wickedness that a human can commit is not giving the worship and adoration that God is worthy of. How do I know that? Because the greatest, the most important command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And if it's the most important command, it demonstrates the weightiness and the magnitude for not keeping it. You see, I've heard people ask Christians, uh, ask questions, Christians and, and non-Christians alike. Uh, they'll, they'll often ask a question like, how can God condemn unbelievers to hell even though they've lived morally upright lives. They've cared for others. They've paid their taxes. They're, they're honest, decent people. They give to charity. And it's a legitimate question. How can God condemn unbelievers to hell 
if they've been morally upright people. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus and you're asking the same question. How can God condemn me to hell despite the fact that I have lived a morally decent life towards others? Well, here's my response to that question. My response is giving you another question. By what moral standard are you determining that you've lived a morally upright life? If you say you've lived a morally decent life, you're assuming that there's a moral standard by which to determine that you have lived a morally decent life. Now, if this moral standard is your own personal preference, then maybe you have lived a morally decent life according to your moral preferences. Or if this standard is the moral standards of our society, then maybe you have lived a morally decent life. But if this standard is God's moral standard, which is the only standard that matters for eternity, then you will realize you have not lived a morally upright life because you have forsaken the most important command given to us from God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. You see, you have to understand this. The Bible teaches that morality is not purely horizontal. It's not purely in relation to others. It's also vertical in relation to God. You have to understand that God is not just concerned about your moral conduct. He's concerned about what you love and the ordering of your love. This is why, for example, Jesus says in Matthew 10, 37, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. You can live a morally upright life, but if you love people more than God, you are not worthy of Jesus. That's what he's saying. Because the most important command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. There's a story of a man in Mark chapter 10. We don't know his name, but he's called the rich young ruler. And he comes to Jesus wanting to know what he must do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus responds to him in Mark 10, 19. Jesus says, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. What has Jesus done here? He's put forward the commands that have to do with loving your neighbor as yourself. This man is saying, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you know the commands. And the man responds in verse 20, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And, and I think he was genuine in this. He really did keep these commands from his youth. Jesus, I have done these things. If this is what's necessary to enter eternal life, Jesus, I've done these things. And what does Jesus do? Looking at him, he loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. One thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And disheartened by the saying, 
he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. What did Jesus do there? By this instruction, Jesus exposed to the man that though he had lived a somewhat morally decent life, he had actually broken the two most important commands given by God. By not giving his money to the poor, he demonstrated he did not love his neighbor as himself. And by not giving his money away and following Jesus, he demonstrated that he loved his money more than God. He loved his money with all his heart, mind, and soul. He was an idolater. See, friend, the rich young man might describe you quite well. If you think you're, you're living a morally upright life, yet you don't love God. See, whether you realize it or not, you've broken the most important command in all the universe. To love the Lord your God with all of who you are. You've forsaken the God who created you. You've forsaken the God who sent his son to die for you. In Romans 1, Paul articulates how God's wrath has been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. But what's at the core of human wickedness and sin and evil according to Romans chapter 1? Paul says this, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and then hear this, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That's the main issue. We did not honor God as God, nor give thanks to Him, and we exchange His glory, the glory of the immortal God, for created things. You see, you could write Romans 1 like this. For although they knew of God, they did not love God with all their heart, mind, and soul, and instead they gave their love and adoration to created things rather than to the immortal God who created them. Paul is basically saying what Jesus said in Mark chapter 12. You see, the answer to your question, how can God condemn me despite me living a morally upright life? The answer to that question is, in the eyes of God, you have not lived a morally upright life, and it's only His eyes that matter. You have broken the most important command. You have forsaken the God who created you. You have forsaken the fountain of all goodness, of beauty, truth, love, and righteousness. You have committed the greatest evil in the eyes of God because you have broken the greatest commandment. And your only hope is not your own so-called goodness. Your only hope is the mercy of God who has given His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die for the sins of lawbreakers like you and me. You see, despite us not loving God the way He is worthy of being loved, 
God in His love, because of His love, sent His Son to rescue sinners from their sins and grant them new everlasting life. That's what John says in 1 John 4.10, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to to be the propitiation for our sins. That is, because of God's love for sinners, He sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die for our sins by being a propitiation for our sins. That is, Christ averted God's righteous judgment towards us sinners by being a sacrifice for our sins. The curse of sin fell on Christ instead of us. And the scriptures tell us that everyone who repents and believes upon Jesus will be delivered from their sins. Friend, look to Christ, not your own goodness. It will not be sufficient when you stand before the judge of all the universe. So the greatest evil that a human being can commit is not giving, the, not giving God the worship and adoration that he is worthy of. That's implied by what the greatest commandment is. Thirdly, this is obvious, but I think it's important. At the heart of the Christian faith, is love. At the heart of the Christian faith is love. There are so many people who think that Christianity is just about rules and rituals and and being a, a, a good person. But at the heart of the Christian faith is love. I mean, think about it. Jesus sums up all of the law and prophets, that is, all the Old Testament, and says, love for God and love for neighbor are the two most important commands. You see, God is way more concerned about where your affections reside than He is about rule-keeping. God is way more concerned about what you love than He is about dutiful religious observance. He's concerned about what you love and how you love. And this is why I said at the beginning... A simple summary of the Christian faith is love from God, love for God, and love for others. That's what Christianity is about. It's about a God who is infinite in love and demonstrated His love towards us by giving us His Son even when we did not love Him in return. That's love from God. But now that we've been rescued by His love and mercy, we now through grace and through His mercy love Him in return. As John says in 1 John 4.19, we love because He first loved us. That's love for God. And because we've been loved by God, we now not only love God, but we seek to love others the way in which God has loved us. We seek to love others as Christ loved others. Dietrich Bonhoeffer called Jesus the man for others. This is the heart of the Christian faith. Love from God, love for God, and love for others. This is why Paul can write in 1 Corinthians 13, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I, have, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, 
but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, that is Christ, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, fully, even as I have fully been known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest, the greatest of these is love. I want to very briefly address those of us who are Christians who know the love of God in Jesus Christ, who have salvation in Christ, who know that we are not able to keep the law in our own strength, but by the Spirit of God we are now called to seek to live according to God's ways. If you want to know what your life is to be about, if you want to know what your purpose is all about, you can sum it up in these two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what our lives are to be about as Christians. That's what we're to be devoted to, growing in our love for God and our love for others. Which means we need to ask ourselves, what is it that I'm intentionally doing in my life to deepen my love for God and for others. You will not grow in your love for God by passivity. You must be active in pursuing your love for God, and you must be active in pursuing your love for others. See, does your life demonstrate that you love God and that you love your neighbor as yourself? Does what you talk about demonstrate that God is your heart's deepest desire. Let me be upfront with all of you this morning. I think many of us as Christians, and I'm not just referring to here at Royal York, but Christians across the board, myself included, over these last two years, we have lost sight what we're truly called to be about. I think COVID, government overreach, the moral decline of our society have caused some of us to lose sight of what we're called to be about. Love for God and love for our neighbor. Listen, when we enter into glory and gaze upon the beauty and glory of Jesus, beholding him in all of his splendor, none of us, none of us are going to look back and think, man, I wish I had spent more time trying to convince people why masks are helpful or unhelpful. 
Or I wish I had spent more of my time convincing people why vaccines are good or not good, safe or unsafe. But here's what I know all of us will say. I wish I had spent more time loving God with more of my whole being. And I wish I had loved people more like Christ loved me. I was talking with a dear brother a few weeks ago and he said to me, it's been so discouraging to see how the only thing that Christians, seems, Christians seem to be able to talk about is always COVID-related. And I think he's right. We worship God. And right after the service, many of us, including myself, can't help but talk about everything that's happening around us. Instead of talking about who God is and what happened in our corporate worship, we immediately move to COVID or politics around COVID. Shame on us. Shame on me. May God forgive us. And may God forgive me. Brothers and sisters, by the Spirit of God, let us give our time, our minds, our energy, our hearts to loving God more and loving our neighbors as ourselves. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that we do not love you as we ought. We acknowledge that only your perfect, sinless Son, the Lord Jesus, fulfilled your law perfectly. And we thank you, God, that despite the fact that we have fallen short of your glory over and over again, you in your mercy and grace through your Son continues, you continue to embrace us and love us. And Lord, we ask that by the power of your Spirit, you would help us to give our lives to loving you with all of our hearts, all of our minds, and all of our souls and that we would give ourselves to loving our neighbors as ourselves. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.